invite you to take a Bible and to turn to 1 Timothy. It's in the New Testament. It's page 993 in these Bibles in the pews. 1 Timothy chapter 6. I've been preaching a series, and I appreciate Parker doing so last week, of passages related to God and money. Uh, not just about giving money. Here we're going to look at an attitude toward money that for those who are poor and those who are rich, uh, but also about uh, saving, about uh, spending, about parables that Jesus told about money. So today we'll look at this passage here before we come to the Lord's table. Now, 1 Timothy is a handbook, you might say, for how to do church. If I was with a core group of people that wanted to plant a church and they said, well, what do we want to be distinctive? What does the New Testament especially tell us about that what should take place in a local church? The handbook for that is 1 Timothy. The Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy who was in the city of Ephesus, which was a metropolitan area at that time, so it was a large city, and he's addressing what should take place in the local church. So in that context, we come toward the end of the letter, and he's going to talk about uh, money, whether you're poor or whether you are wealthy. I'm going to read selected verses, primarily verses 3 to 10, and then verses 17 to 19. Hear God's word. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, but we cannot take anything out of it. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now if you'll drop down to verse 17, which says, if I get the page right, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Let's pray together. Father, you tell us that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. We ask now you'd use your word. Speak to us in Christ's name. Amen. As a young student in elementary school, I remember tests, and these were the kinds I liked, that were matching, where you would match the answers with the questions, and it was very objective. And, uh, 
And I uh, like those kinds of tests. And I especially like the kinds that involved opposites. You know, here's a word, uh, letter A. What is the word here? What is the opposite of, of this word? Well, the Bible has many opposites. It has words that you find in contrast, especially through the Psalms and through the book of Proverbs. In fact, I'm going to give you a test, not to answer out loud, but just to know in your mind. If you think, what is the opposite in the Bible of good, it is evil. What is the opposite of truth? It is error. What is the opposite of light? It is darkness. What is the opposite of wisdom? Foolishness, well, you find in Proverbs. One more. What is the opposite of knowledge? Ignorance, you find that. Now, here's one that I'll be surprised if many of us could get. What is the opposite of greed? No? Contentment. The opposite of greed, as we'll see in this passage, said generosity, that's a sign of being not it, but it is contentment is the opposite of greed. Why do I say that? Well, let's look at this passage, and I, I hope it will connect with that. Paul is writing, as I mentioned, to his pastor friend, Timothy. And he's pastor in Ephesus, and there were false teachers coming into the local church. So as I mentioned, this is a handbook for a local church. One of the things Paul is admonishing Timothy to do as a pastor is to deal with these false teachers. How was he to deal with them? Well, first he says you need to understand this about them. They are false teachers, and it affects two areas. And the first area he mentions here is what they teach is false. It says in verse 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. So they were teaching things that were out of accord with the words of Jesus. What does the gospel tell us? What is the good news? It is that Jesus is the one and only Son of Son of God. Uh, he was man as well as God. He was born of a virgin. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He suffered and died on a, on a cross on a hill called Calvary. He was buried in a tomb. He was raised physically, bodily from the dead. And, and he gives eternal life to everyone who believes in him. So that is the sound doctrine that Jesus taught. The second sign that he gave or characteristic of these false teachers is that they thought, it says in verse 5, that godliness is a means of gain. They meant financial gain. It was an early version of the prosperity gospel, that God wants everyone to be rich. And so if you follow him, I, here, here's how he's going to materially bless your life. In other words, they were in ministry for the money. What motivated them was not godliness, but greed, greediness. And they were not men of God so much as they were men of greed. And Paul mentioned those, those two things. False teaching, the doctrine is in error, and their motivation is wrong. They're doing it for material gain. So the opposite of greed, we're going to see, and we see elsewhere in the New Testament, is contentment. And the next several verses deal with this topic that we need so much today. And he addresses two groups of people. The first are those in the church who are poor. 
And secondly, those who are wealthy. So first, some instruction to the Christian poor. That's in verses 6 to 10. Uh, the false teacher said godliness was a, a way to gain more material things. And Paul says it is a way to gain, but not financial gain. It's a spiritual gain if you add contentment to it. Now, Paul had demonstrated contentment. He had said whether he was... Um, had a lot or whether he had very little, whether he had his freedom, whether he was in prison, whether he was among friends or whether he was being pursued by enemies. He said, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry. So whether I've got a full stomach or whether I've got an empty stomach, he said, I've learned to be content. Whether I'm living in plenty and I have everything I need or in want, whether my desires are not met, I've still learned to be content. And the secret, he calls, is not found in yourself, but in Christ. So genuine contentment is not self-sufficiency, it is Christ's sufficiency. That's why godliness plus contentment, he says, equals great spiritual gain. Now here he contrasts two categories of the Christian poor. First, there were those who were content. They were contented. They had the necessities of life. But second, there were poor who were covetousness, and they loved money, and they wanted to get rich. So first, the contented poor, verses 7 and 8. These people are not destituted. A destitute, um, a person in destitution has nothing. We can see on the news people that have nothing. I mean, they don't have shelter, they don't have clothing, they don't have food. There is nowhere in the Bible that says a person should be content in that situation. God created us to need food. God created us to need shelter. We weren't created like some animals that can live in all types of weather outside. So they have the basics. He's not talking about being destitute. But relative to the people around them, they were poor. But they did have food, clothing, and shelter. How does he urge them to be content? He reminds them in verse 7, we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. So the only way we can understand this life is to look to the end of it. To know that at that point in time, I will take nothing with me. I will take no material things. I brought none into the world. I'll take none out. So we are born with nothing. We're born naked and penniless. And when we die, we are buried in the same condition. I did read a story of a man who was very wealthy. And he, his request was when he died... He wanted to be buried in this very, very expensive Cadillac, wearing a $2,000 suit with a $200 cigar stuck in his mouth. And the crane operator, they said, who was lowering the car down with the man inside of it, with the cigar and the suit as he was lowering it down, was heard to say, man, now that's livid. Well, even if you were buried like that, you still take nothing out of this life. So possessions are not the stuff of eternity. What then should our attitude be toward material things, even toward these who relatively were poor in that church in Ephesus? 
Paul replies, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. And food and clothing there, the wording includes shelter. They are essential for everyone. So again, he's not saying that's the maximum anyone should have, but it is compatible with contentment. So whatever your situation right now, if you have food and clothing and shelter, and I assume that's true for all of us in this room, then that is not a reason, that is not an excuse not to have contentment and, and not live each day thinking, well, I'll be content when, when this happens, when I graduate, when I have a job, when I have another job, when I'm married, when I'm not married. Uh, it's, it's like we always have it out there. It's like the carrot in front of us, that if I just have that, then I'll be content. And Paul is saying, no, right, if you have food, clothing, and shelter, that is sufficient. You can be content in Christ at that point. Now, in verses 9 to 10, he's addressing some words to those who are poor, but they're covetousness. They are not content. There are people who are poor, he says in verse 9, who want to get rich. And they're motivated by a love of money. Just because someone is poor does not mean that person is not materialistic. Does not mean that person is not greedy. Just because a person is poor does not mean that person uh, does not live coveting uh, other people's things. And he says first in verse 9, people who want to get rich fall. They fall into temptation. They fall into temptation and a trap. It leads them by pursuing wealth and wanting to get rich. In a sense, they are leading themselves into temptation. It's not as though someone is sneaking up on them and tricking them. No, that desire will lead you into temptation. Second, covetous people fall into many foolish and harmful desires. Greed itself is a desire, but it breeds other desires. Money is like a drug, and covetousness is like an addiction. And uh, for the more you have, the more you want. And Paul says these further desires are foolish. And then the third and final stage he mentions here in the downfall of the covetous is their wrong desires plunge them into ruin and destruction. The idea is that they can lead you into disaster in this life and even hell in the next life. Then he quotes what was probably a current proverb. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. What kind of evil? Well, greed leads to uh, cheating, lying, fraud, perjury, robbery, envy, quarreling, hatred, violence, even murder. If you've not read the biography of the missionary to Vanuatu named John G. Patton, who went to these islands that are a thousand miles uh, northeast of Australia to, in the direction of Hawaii, who went there in the 1800s as a missionary, and there are hundreds if not thousands of islands in that whole area. I remember when a hurricane hit Vanuatu uh, several years ago, I didn't know where it was. I didn't know anything about it, but it was on the news and they were showing all these scenes. And so I, I looked up the, the country on Wikipedia so I knew it would be accurate. And I saw there where they said that 95% of the population professed to be Christians. And then I looked and it said the vast majority of those were Presbyterians. And I was like, how did that happen? 
which led me to begin reading back to that missionary that went from Scotland named John G. Patton in the 1800s with his wife there to take the gospel. The first missionaries had gone to what they were called the New Hebrides Islands back then. They had been dropped off in the early 1800s with the London Missionary Society and in sight of the ship that took them there, these missionaries, they were killed and eaten on the beach. Nobody wanted to go be a missionary at the New Hebrides until John Patton heard about that and left Scotland as a young man in his late 20s uh, to go there with his wife. Well, I was reading about what happened while they were, they were having a fruitful ministry. It was a very, very difficult ministry. And after they'd been there for several years and were beginning to gain credibility with the superstitious uh, natives that lived there to, on those islands that had been living there for centuries. Merchants came from England and they wanted the sandalwood. It's an Aramaic wood. They say it's the most expensive wood in the world uh, today. And they wanted that sandalwood, so they came and they, they saw John Patton and said, we figured out a way to get rid of all these savages, as they call them. And they said, we, uh, we're not, he said, are you going to fight them? Or are you going to, and they said, no, we're going to give them measles. So they got one of their princes, they tricked him to come out to their boat saying they were going to give him a present and they locked him in the room with some other people that had measles and then the next day they sent him back and within weeks uh, about half of the population of the island were all dying. Now what drove that? Greed. It's hard to read. This are, you say, well, that's corporate greed. Well, it was also individual greed, but that greed led to lying, perjury, murder in those cases. So that's what he says. If you desire that, that's one of the dangers of desiring to be rich. <clears throat> so in verse 10, he chooses to focus on two particular evils which spring from covetousness. First, some people eager for money have wandered away from the faith. It's not possible to pursue biblical truth and make your main goal in life the pursuit of becoming wealthy. Second, they pierce themselves with many griefs. So he's not for poverty and against wealth, what you would say in the Bible. It's, it's not opposed to poverty. It's not opposed to wealth. It is in support of contentment. And you can be poor and not be content, and you can be wealthy and not be content. So let me move on. What are some instructions for the Christian rich? Hey, the the clock up here on the uh, pulpit says it's, I've got another hour to preach. <laughs> well, that's all messed up now. So, Some, are, some instructions to the Christian, Christian rich in verses 17 and 19. First two negative instructions. Dangers of being rich in verse 17. The first danger to which anyone wealthy is exposed is pride. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty not to be arrogant, not to look down on others. Wealth can make you and me feel more important and more important than the next person that doesn't have as much. And it can make people look down on others. And wealthy people frequently boast about what they have or, or show it off. And that's a danger. That's opposed to uh, sanctification in Christ as being prideful. And wealth can do that to any person. 
And if you think, oh, if I was wealthy, I wouldn't be that way. No, you don't know. You don't know what, what it would do to you. Secondly, the second danger is it exposes us to a false sense of security. In verse 17, the danger to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. It's here today and gone tomorrow. The old saying that money speaks, I'll not deny. I heard it once. It said, goodbye. So to do so, to set your hope on that is short-sighted because you can lose it at any moment. And if you, find, if you place your security in something that can be lost, Christ is saying that's not wise. That's not a wise way to live. And that's why I warned against laying up treasure on earth only that can be ravaged in those days and still to some degree to our days with, by moths and rust and burglars and inflation and devaluation of the value of it. But, he says, put your hope in God. So the two dangers which the wealthy are exposed is arrogance and pride, looking down on others who are less fortunate than themselves, and a false sense of security by trusting in the gifts rather than the giver. So do you get the idea? Paul is not condemning poverty, saying, well, if you're impoverished, you must be, God must be mad at you. You're not living by faith. Or if you're wealthy, then you're obviously in sin by the very fact you're, in we you're wealthy. No. He says in either case, what does it mean to be a growing Christian? If you're wealthy, be generous. Be generous. And don't put your trust in your wealth. Don't, don't look at your, your bottom line of your bank account or your investments and think, oh, I'm secure. Boy, I've, I've arrived now. When, when Christ is saying that's a foolish way to live because that is so fragile. So here are the positive instructions of the duty of being rich in verses 18 and 19. They are to do good, to be rich in good works. So with wealth comes a sense of responsibility. I'll say it again that I've said before. There's some of you that are young right now. You're in middle school. You're in high school. You may be in college. And God, at some time in the future, may entrust to you large, large uh, sums of money. That right now you say, no, no, that will never happen. Well, I've, I've seen it happen. You want to develop your mindset toward that. What would God have you do now before it happens? Not when it happens. Well, hopefully, you know, that's not too late. But you develop habits in the area of spending and giving. And one of the most generous men I know was my college roommate. And God did with him what I just described. Uh, through a large company that became a national company and so forth, and I remember early on, and he was the first person I heard say this, when he and his wife were, were just getting started, he was a young lawyer at that time, and he said, I, Chip, I have no problem making as much, honestly, making as much money legitimately as possible. My, our concern is not letting our standard of living continually creep up. We want to hit a point where we say, this is enough. This, this house, this, these cars, and rather than thinking, oh, just because I make more, suddenly every, our standard of living and our expenses are going to keep going up. Now, those were the words of roughly a 27-year-old to me. Uh, but his father had died when he was in the fifth grade. He had basically had to manage the finances and investments for his mother. When we were in college, I would look over at his desk 
we, being roommates, and he would be working on his mother's income taxes. Now, I don't know about you, but I, did, I didn't know what an income tax form was when I was in college. So I think he grew into that. He, the roots were sunk deep with his understanding of how God wants me to live before the wealth came. Secondly, he says, the wealthy need a sense of proportion in verse 19, thus storing up for themselves a good foundation for the future. Uh, so basically, and I'm, I'm going to wrap it up as we come to the Lord's table. Um, they're not to be proud and despise the poor, but to do good and be generous. And they're not to fix their hope on the uncertainty of, of riches. Dick Lucas was a great preacher. He's, he's still alive. He's like 97 years old. He was a member of the Church of England, a pastor in the Church of England, and I remember he preached here one Sunday many years ago. I doubt if many of you remember this, uh, but I had heard of Dick Lucas at that time, and then when, I, when we said Dick Lucas is going to be here to preach, we were like, oh, we can't believe he's going to be here. Uh, Dick Lucas told the story, not when he was here, but elsewhere, where he met a man who was very wealthy in London. That's where Dick Lucas pastored. And this man was seeking peace with God. And he said, I went to a church, and the pastor told me if I'd believe in Jesus, then I would be able to get a new Jaguar automobile. And he said, I thought, I already have a Jaguar, and I've still got problems and concerns. Do you not have anything more to tell me than that? And Dick Lucas talked to him about the gospel and the truth of knowing Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we continue to pray as we learn each week that we would be good stewards, recognizing you are the giver of every good and perfect gift. Help us to live with a sense of responsibility before you. Help us to grow in the area of contentment. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.